It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to open God's word to you. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 101. Psalm 101, a text that we've been in now. This will be our third week. Psalm 101. I want to read this text for us, and then we'll be, we will continue to, to think through it. Psalm 101, Psalm of David. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Yahweh, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of Yahweh all those who do iniquity. We hear a lot today about, in, about tolerance. And though there is a measure of tolerance that we as believers are called to, which is good and right and holy, what is being championed today is ungodliness. It seems that tolerance has become the greatest virtue that one can hold to. To be accepted in society, one must tolerate everything that society prioritizes. You must be willing to sacrifice all your biblical convictions on the altar of compromise. The unifying tolerance of the day is marked by the intolerance of anything moral, righteous, godly, and even rational. In other words, the tolerance that is demanded we hold to by our world is explained ironically as not tolerating, tolerating anything that is absolute, aka the scriptures. If we are going to be truly tolerant, we are going to accept everyone and their sin happily. A prime example of this is that is pervasive right now is the gender ideology that is seeping into everything. If you don't buy into gender being fluid instead of objective, you are intolerant, you are uneducated, and you are hateful, and you should be treated as an outcast of society. Friends, let me say with the utmost authority, God's authority, that we are not to tolerate evil in our lives as Christians. God is perfectly holy, and he demands, demands that his people be holy. This is where we find ourselves this morning in our text. And before we get into the verses that we are going 
to study, let me briefly remind you of the series we find ourselves in. We are considering what it looks like to think biblically. Thinking biblically is critical to living a life that is pleasing to the Lord and to being fulfilled as God intended us to be. Psalm 101 presents to us a portrait of a biblical thinker. This psalm helps us to get a clear picture of what a life that is governed by biblical thinking looks like. David is the author of this psalm. And the context surrounding him writing it is that he is about to ascend to the throne over, as king over all of Israel. And as he contemplates that soon-to-be reality, he outlines the convictions that he is committed to as he's going to govern as king. Through this, we get five clarifying convictions of one who thinks biblically. So far, we have looked at two, the first being a couple weeks ago, a commitment to biblical meditation. Commitment to biblical meditation. One who is able to genuinely worship God both privately and corporately, as David expresses in verse 1, as he says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Yahweh, I will sing praises. One who is able to genuinely worship God in that way is one who has his or her mind fixed upon God and his truth. Genuine worship from the heart exudes from a mind that is saturated with the scriptures. Biblical thinking begins with biblical meditation. You will not be a biblical thinker. You will not process things the way that God has called us to process things in this world if you are not committed to biblical meditation. The second conviction that we looked at last time is found in verse 2, and that is a commitment to a faithful, godly life. A commitment to a faithful, godly life. One who is committed to a faithful, godly life is one, as verse 2 says, who gives heed to the blameless way. That is to say that his daily actions are wise. He, He gives careful consideration to his ways, his decisions, his actions, He lives a life that is prudent. How does one become careful in this? Well, he lives a life, first of all, of personal discipline. We talked about that. This person lives a life of order and and structure that is governed by biblical priorities. They not only live a life of personal discipline, but they also live a life, as we looked at last time, of spiritual maintenance. As he says there at the end of verse 2, I will walk within my heart in the integrity of, I walk in my house within the integrity, uh, in the integrity of my heart. Now, this involves being marked by continual repentance and obedience. And as we've said several times before, this is not a life of perfection. No Christian is going to live perfectly. But rather, this is a life that is guided by a commitment to keep short accounts with God
A life that is directed in the right way, a life that is governed by biblical thinking is a life that is convicted to keep short accounts with God and others and it's a life that loves Jesus. And when this person stumbles, as we all stumble, this side of heaven, he repents and he forsakes his sin and he embraces God's forgiveness and he keeps going. He doesn't give up the fight. But not only is this one or his actions wise, but we find then at the end of verse 2 that his, his daily motives are pure. David was committed to living with integrity of heart in his, his day-to-day life. Integrity of heart is, is the motor which drives a wise and faithful life. Without integrity in your heart, your life will not be wise. Your life will not be godly. Your life will not be faithful, at least not through and through. We're all good at some, to some extent, at living double lives, unfortunately. <laughs> there can be the appearance of faithfulness. Uh, there can be the appearance of godliness. There, those things can be there for others to see, but, but to truly be living a life of godliness and faithfulness, your motives must be pure. Your heart must be committed to integrity. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. There's a third factor of this commitment that we ended with last time, and that is that his daily strength is Yahweh's presence. His daily strength is Yahweh's presence. This is seen in the middle of verse 2 where David says to Yahweh, he says, when will you come to me? Kind of a weird place for him to say, to ask that question. But what he's doing with that question is he is expressing his, his complete dependence upon Yahweh to enable him to live a faithful, godly life. Because if we are going to be genuine, if we are going to fight against the hypocrisy that is just can seep into our lives, it is only going to be through the strength of God. So his strength is Yahweh's presence. Now this brings us then to a third commitment that we find here this morning in verses three through five. And that commitment is this. It is a commitment to not tolerate evil. A commitment to not tolerate evil. Look again at verse 3. He says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. So far in verses 1 and 2, we have seen a a strong commitment of the will declared by David expressed positively, right? I will sing. I will give heed. I will walk. Positive statements. And he will do that throughout the remainder of the psalm in various places as well. But here... We see that same strong declaration expressed negatively. He says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes or in my presence. 
This is the strongest way in the Hebrew language to express intolerance for something. The construction here that is used in verse 3 and throughout the rest of the psalm when he expresses something negatively should be understood as David saying, I will never set a worthless thing before my eyes. I will never tolerate evil. I will never put up with evil influences. That's the strength of the construction here in the Hebrew language. Those are strong statements, are they not? I will never put up with evil? That is a strong statement. That is a strong commitment. And we must admit at the outset that we know David did not live out this commitment perfectly as king. In fact, he failed miserably at certain points. However, these commitments that he's laying out in this psalm were the desire of his heart that were informed biblically. They were desires which had been informed biblically. If we are thinking biblically, we too will have an absolute intolerance for evil. As David penned this, and we know he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know he was writing exactly what God intended him to write. And we know that the intentions of his heart as he wrote this psalm were that strong. I will never set anything worthless before my eyes. David's intolerance for evil flies in direct opposition to the tolerance that is being demanded by our world today. So how does he flesh out this commitment to not tolerate evil? Well, first, we see in the first half of verse 3 that he has no tolerance for personal evil. He has no tolerance for personal evil. Look again at the first half of verse 3. He says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. David is declaring that he will never place anything destructive or wicked before his eyes, or he will never have anything destructive or wicked in his presence. David, as one who is thinking biblically, is refusing to have his mind and his life influenced by wickedness. This statement refers to both things and to people, as we will see more in a moment as these verses continue to unfold. But notice there in that first part of verse 3, notice the personal commitment he uses through those personal pronouns, which are obviously throughout the entirety of this psalm. But he says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. This was a very personal commitment by David. His mind had been influenced with the truth and he understood who God was. 
as he understood who he was called to be as king, as he understood who he was as as a believer. This commitment came from his lips. It came to his pen. He said, I, I myself will not set any worthless thing before my eyes. He understands what Jesus stated in Matthew 20, in Matthew 6, 22 through 23, when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then that light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see, what Jesus was getting at and what David understood is that what enters the body through the eyes, through your sight, through what you look at, it influences the entirety of your life. It is not some compartment that you do this thing with your eyes when you gaze upon evil or when you tolerate evil that is just set aside and it doesn't have any effect on the rest of you. No, it's the exact opposite. And that's what Jesus was getting at. He's saying life enters through the eyes. And so what you take in is how your life is going to shape out. This is who you are going to be. As king, David could not afford to be entertaining evil in his presence. We see, unfortunately, a vivid, vivid illustration of why this commitment is so important in David's catastrophic, sinful decision in regard to Bathsheba, do we not? David had no business setting his gaze on Bathsheba as the language in 2 Samuel 11 indicates. When you read 2 Samuel 11, and we've dealt with that text on several occasions, but when you read 2 Samuel 11, it talks about David seeing Bathsheba when she was on that rooftop. This wasn't just a, a look and a look away and a moving on with life. This wasn't an accidental look. The language there is very strong in terms of setting a gaze, engaging your eyes and your mind in what is being shown. He had no business doing that. And as a result of setting his gaze on a woman who wasn't his wife, instead of immediately turning away and fleeing that scenario, his eyes led him to think lustfully instead of biblically. And what happened? He shattered his world and he shattered the world of all those who he influenced. His life, his family's life, Bathsheba's family killed Uriah, her husband. If he had held fast to his commitment that he had made sometime earlier before he ascended to the throne, it would have kept him from the dire consequences that he suffered for the rest of his life. You see, we get a vivid illustration of why this is so critical, of why this is so important, of why David, when he was thinking biblically, before he ascended to the throne, why this is so crucial. Because when you decide not to do it, you bring destruction. 
And some of that destruction can never be undone. Friends, I plead with you to consider the things that you are setting before your eyes. It matters. It matters. If we had the ability to hear David cry from the grave, we would no doubt hear him plead at the top of his lungs to have no tolerance for setting wickedness before our eyes. This is hard, right? This is hard because we are bombarded on a constant basis with the wickedness of the evil one in all of our media formats that we have so accessibly, so much access to. This world is spiraling at a very fast rate to hell, and they are flaunting all of their hellish thoughts, actions, and decisions to everyone else around them as they go. It's as if we are being pinned down, we are pinned down in a gunfight with bullets coming at us from all angles. It's a little bit what it feels like. This then begs the question, if we are going to have to battle this wickedness on a constant basis because we live in a world where it is unavoidable at times, why? Why in the world would we seek to intentionally put evil before our eyes for the purpose of entertainment or self-gratification? Why? If it's so destructive, if it causes so much damage, if it is the pathway to hell that the world is on, why, why would we think that we should set that before our eyes and that be an okay thing? This commitment to not tolerate personal evil for David was both public and private. One who tolerates evil in their life is one who is not thinking biblically. There's no other way around it. You cannot compartmentalize evil. You cannot compartmentalize certain aspects of your life. You cannot compartmentalize your public life and your private life. You are who you are. I am who I am. And if we are tolerating evil, then we are not thinking biblically. One who is thinking biblically clearly understands what God means when he says that he is perfectly holy and that sin is an affront to that holiness. This one understands that when we tolerate evil in our lives, we are assaulting the character of God. This one understands what sin costs. That it cost the very son of God his life. Jesus didn't hang on the cross 
for righteous people. Jesus hung on the cross because of our sin. Because it was an affront to the absolute perfect holiness of his father and of him as his son. The triune Godhead was completely and totally offended at the sight of every single sin that has ever been committed. Offended to the point where sin cannot be tolerated in the presence of a holy God. And so God could either justly send every single one of us to hell to pay the penalty for our sin because we are an affront to his holiness or because God is not only just, but he is loving, he is gracious, and he is merciful. He could take his perfect son, put him upon the cross, place all of our sin upon him so that the one who knew no sin became sin for us and therefore satisfy his justice against our sin. Those were the options. You see, friends, when we are thinking biblically, when we are contemplating the holiness of God and the cost of our sin, we will have no tolerance for evil in our lives. Evil is in direct opposition to God and his ways. When our minds are set upon the truth of the word of God, we are going to fight. We are going to fight to have no, toler- no tolerance policy for evil in our lives. Again, this is not perfection. Don't mix this up. Don't mix this up. There are battles and there are fights and sometimes there are losses. But you, if you are making the same commitment that David made, you are committing, saying, God, I will do everything in my power to not tolerate evil in my life. And then if that happens at some point, you are quick, as we talked about before, to keep a short account with God and say, God, help me to repent and to actually forsake this sin and continue to move forward. David had no tolerance for personal evil. And we saw that even after that horrible, sinful act with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, when he was confronted on that sin, David repented immediately. He repented and forsake that sin. And though his family was destroyed, because sometimes you can't alter the consequences of sin... They are what they are. But he got back on the horse and he kept moving. And when we look at David in the scriptures, we see a man who is tagged as a man after God's own heart. And so it's important we understand that. Well, not only did David commit to having no tolerance for personal evil, he also committed to having, secondly, no tolerance for evil companions. No tolerance for, for evil companions. And this is, this is critical. Look at the second, 
second part of verse 3. He says, I hate, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Those who you hang out with, those who are your closest friends, those who you spend the most time with will influence you. Proverbs gives us the benefits of good friendships, doesn't it? And good friendships are beautiful. They sharpen us. It says a good friend sticks closer than a brother. Good friends tell us the truth. Good friends encourage us. Proverbs is full of the benefits of good friendship. But on the flip side, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 tells us very directly, very bluntly, the results of tolerating evil companions when Paul says this, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. David was committed to a a biblical morality. That is, the way that he was shaped, the way that he thought about life was, was shaped biblically. And therefore, he says in the second part of verse 3 that he hates those who are evil influences. To hate here in this context is to stand in opposition against. He stood, he was committing to stand in opposition against those evil influences. Those who fall away, as the text says. He knew that if he were to be influenced by evil friends and evil advisors as king, the effects that would impact uh, the nation of Israel negative, negatively and displeased God would be catastrophic. His decisions as king weren't just made in a box for himself, just as regardless of how much of a loner you are, and I just say that just in terms of some people like to be by themselves a lot more than other people. It doesn't matter. Your actions will still influence other people. David's actions would influence a lot of people. And so he, he did not want to be influenced by evil friends or evil advisors. Notice how he categorizes these companions, the, these ones whom he opposes. And this is helpful for us to understand to evaluate the influential relationships in our lives. But again, this can serve as a, a litmus test. First, he hates the unfaithful apostate people and their deeds. He hates those who practice apostasy, those who who fall away. This indicates that that they may have started out on the right path, but now they have turned their back on what is true and and from living according to that truth. That's what's indicated there in in verse 3 as he says, I hate the work of those who, who fall away. It's where we get our word apostasy from. And his opposition to these people is emphasized as he says, it shall not fasten its grip on me. The, the it here in this text is referencing the apostate's work. That is their ways, their, their attitudes, their actions, and their words. He refuses to be influenced by those things, he says. He refuses to let those things fasten their grip on him or or cling to him to become part of his character. 
My wife and I have been married a long time. 21 years here in a couple months. It's been wonderful. But if you knew me, my wife and I 21 years ago compared to how we are now, we were very, very different 21 years ago from each other. We thought differently. We ate different foods. I ate good ones. She ate bad ones. You know, a lot of those kinds of things. I mean, if you spend a little bit of time with us, you will know very quickly that we are becoming the same person. And that's unfortunate for my wife. Because <laughs> she, was, she was better off than, than becoming like me. But, but that happens over time, doesn't it? You spend time with people. You, you become like them. You, you have family traits. Some people have family smells. Some people have family traits. Right? Our family smell, if you come into our house, is garlic. I just come in there, we are cooking garlic. I'm having eggs this morning. I'm like, why does our house always smell like garlic? So it was cooked in the oven last night. What happens? But you have family traits. You look alike. You start to talk alike. You start to use the same phrases. You, you become like the people you hang out with. That's, that's the point. That's the idea of this idea of fastening its grip, clinging. And when you hang out with somebody, their attitudes influence you. The, the way that they think influences you. The way that they talk influences you. The things that they do influence you. He refuses to let those who fall away fasten their grip on him. Why? Because they are not true and they are against the will of God. Those things that apostates, these who fall away in our text, do are not true. They don't think rightly about God. They don't speak rightly about God. They don't act according to the scriptures. And so they are against the will of God. Friends, your, your closest companions should not be those who oppose God. Those who live in a way that is contrary to God's word and his character. Those you hang out with and share life with should be those who have turned their uh, should not be those who have turned their back on Christ and the gospel. And regardless of how strong you think you are, you will be influenced by their ways in your thinking, which will affect your life. It's just the truth. David's commitment is to be our commitment. To not, tell, to not tolerate their presence in order to avoid their evil influence. Now, let me just comment and say this is not saying that we should not interact with unbelievers. We absolutely should interact with unbelievers. They need the gospel. As Wes told us the last four weeks as we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. Our responsibility is to plead with them who do not know Christ to come to Christ. That is our job. That is our responsibility. So this commitment is not saying we do not interact with unbelievers. That is absolutely false. What this commitment is saying is that we should not have people in our lives who are unbelievers who hold an influential place in our lives. In other words, they should be listening to us. We should not be listening to them. Let 
A second category he gives regarding evil companions are the deceitful and untrustworthy. Notice verse 4. He said, A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. The word perverse here carries the idea of deceitful and untrustworthy. This is those who deceptively seek to lead him astray, typically for their own benefit. Consider this in terms of his advisors. He could not, he couldn't have those giving him counsel who were there to manipulate him and sway his decisions to profit themselves or to serve their interests. Couldn't have people like that in his little group of advisors. He he was committed to keeping them out of his presence. He caused them, it says, to depart from him. He, He kicked them out of his presence. He was committed to not being tricked into wickedness. He says, I will never know evil in the context of having those kinds of people influence him. I will not be influenced by those who hate God. Again, this is an absolute commitment to avoid evil influence at all costs. David will remove those who are going to influence him deceitfully or or falsely. Listen, if there are people in your life, if the people in your life who influence you are deceitful and manipulative, you turn aside from them. Friends, they will lead you into evil. If your constant closest companions are those who manipulate you (laughs) and get you involved in things you shouldn't be involved in, those aren't good friends. Those are evil companions. And if you're going to think biblically, you're going to start to move away from those friendships. They will get you mixed up in bad circumstances that you had no desire or business to be in. I've told you before, I'm kind of a, a cop show junkie. And, and, you know, the illustration that comes to my mind is, is that when, you know, a murder takes place, maybe it was a, a drive-by shooting or something, and you have the guy who was just driving his friend to this place because he needed a ride, and then you have the friend who intended to go to this place because he was going to kill somebody, all of a sudden, you have this driver who's made a really bad decision, right? He's hanging out with the wrong dude because that dude just committed murder. And you're with him, so you're now you're an accomplice of that murder. And you could be charged in the same way, and you may have had no intention. He said, let's go get a chocolate shake. And all of a sudden, you're in a jail cell getting indicted for felony murder. Well, that's an extreme example, but that's what I'm talking about. You hang out with unwise people, you end up in that kind of scenario. (laughs) You end up saying, man, I'm not sure how I got here, but I don't think this was my original intention. (laughs) And maybe it was in the context of trying to love somebody. But your love of somebody became you being influenced by them, your world becoming all about that person, and so all of a sudden you're willing to go do whatever with them. And they have all kinds of bad intentions. You should go with them, and then you end up getting mixed up in this kind of mess. You get away from people who are manipulative and their influence. 
He continues on in verse 5, characterizing these evil companions. He says they are, they are the secret slanderers, the secret slanderers. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. This describes those who are always talking about others in a way that drags them through the mud. This is a form of gossip. Often the motivation for those who slander is to put themselves in a better light by doing what? Well, by assassinating the character of somebody else. I can make myself look better by assassinating the character of that person. David wasn't going to tolerate influential people in his life who were constantly assaulting the character of others. In fact, he says that he will destroy them, (laughs) that is to silence them. If your primary companions in this life are those who are characterized by slander, you need to remove them from your inner circle. If you are characterized by slander, stop it or you're going to get removed from people who have you in their inner circle. And instead, you need to confront them in their slander. Why? For the purpose of silencing it. Not just let it go and move on. We have responsibilities to believers, especially those who are in our inner circle, to our friends. It's taking place, you have a responsibility, first of all, not to tolerate it, and secondly, to silence it. One who thinks biblically will have no tolerance in his or her life for listening to slander. The final character trait that exposes one who is an evil companion is there at the end of verse 5, and it is this, it is the proud and the discontent. The proud and the discontent. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, no one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. David will not tolerate anyone with a haughty look or an arrogant heart. A haughty look here describes one who has a superior attitude, one who looks down on others. This is one who is the opposite of humble. As my wife says, they think they are all that in a bag of chips. She says that sometimes, and we make fun of her, but... That's this person. That's this person. And that mentality is clear in how they treat people. Things like this, things like undermining others' opinions, the inability to listen, the inability to be wrong, the refusal to repent. It's someone who has a haughty look. An arrogant heart is literally a broad heart. This, this describes one who is greedy, one who, whose desires are never satisfied, one who is discontent. They think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, and they develop the I deserve it mentality. I deserve this, I deserve that, I deserve, because of who I am, because of what I've done. And because they have developed this I deserve it mentality, they are never content with what they have or with who they are. Listen, David commits to not putting up with this type of person. Neither are we two. You will be influenced by them negatively. Listen, if we're going to be those who think biblically, We must commit to not tolerate evil in our lives. 
these two things are mutually exclusive. Thinking biblically and evil, they don't go hand in hand. So if you're doing, if you're thinking biblically, you're going to be committed to not tolerate evil. If you're tolerating evil, you're not committed to thinking biblically. As we close our time this morning, there's obviously a plethora of personal application that can be made to our lives, and we've talked through a lot of that. I simply just want to challenge you this week to consider these two things first, what you choose to put before your eyes and who you choose to hang out with regularly. Two very simple personal applications that come out of these verses. And as you consider those things, as you evaluate those things, ask yourself, Am I tolerating evil in my life? Am I tolerating it? Am I okay with it? Is it there? If you are, repent and forsake that evil. God is a God of mercy. (laughs) He tells us in, I believe it's Proverbs chapter 14, that he who confesses and forsakes his transgression will find mercy. And the flip side of that verse is, he who doesn't will not prosper. God is a God of mercy. Repent, forsake that evil. Just, God, help me to see this. Am I, am I this kind of person? Am I hanging out with these kinds of people? Am I tolerating evil? God, bring that to the surface. I want to repent of it. I want to do business with you. I want to deal with it. Do that this way. And if you evaluate and you see that you are fighting against tolerating evil, then you will be able to trace it back to thinking biblically. And you need to be encouraged by that. But not just be encouraged in that state, but be encouraged to the extent that you will excel still more. You will continue to amp up that fight. We long for Jesus to come back. And I know, if you know Christ and you love Christ, in your heart of hearts, you desire for him to find you faithful when he comes back. We work towards that end by evaluating these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time. Heavy commands strong commitments. Father, as we ended with last time, in and of ourselves, we are incapable of this. So Father, we need your strength. We need the strength of your Holy Spirit to enable us to obey you. Deepen our love for Christ. As Jesus said, he said, if you love me, you obey my commands. Continue to give us a glorious vision of Christ in the scriptures. As we gaze upon him, as we gaze upon the holiness of the triune God, Father, may we hate evil. May we continue to shed it. May we continue to not tolerate it. May we fight for that. God, we long for that day when evil will be completely and totally done away with. Life will be perfect. Perfect. 
It's an amazing thing to think about that that's what you promise for those of us who are in Christ. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.